0: All right, episode 10. Welcome, Whitney Voss.
1: Thanks. Congrats on episode 10.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about betrayal trauma today. Um, so tell me kind of who you are and what you do. And
1: Okay. Um, I am a licensed professional counselor, and I've been working at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrated Wellness for almost three years. Um, I started here as an intern and just kind of did all of my supervision hours um, here and have really loved it. I specialize in sex addiction and betrayal trauma. Um, well, sex and porn addiction and betrayal trauma. and But I still see people who have struggles with anxiety, depression, not related to those things as well.
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I know next week we're going to have Ross on and we're going to talk about the sex addiction part and porn <clears> addiction <throat> and dive into that. So we can talk a little bit about the difference and then he can dive into it. So obviously sex addiction and porn addiction are separate things in betrayal trauma. So can you just give a general right. why those are different?
1: Right. <clears throat> so sex addiction... Um, there's multiple be- types of behaviors that fall under that, um, and it's it's a lot different than, let's say, alcohol or drug addiction in the sense of that typically you're acting out in a physical sense um, involving sexuality. And so that may look like um, one-night stands. It may look like going to massage parlors. It may look like cruising behaviors, different types of behaviors. Porn addiction is typically isolated to just having a compulsive issue with watching porn
0: right and that's been kind of a change in the last what four or five years in right. the community of figuring out the difference between what sex addiction is and that if you watch porn whether you're an mm-hmm. addict or whether you're addicted to porn and kind of pulling those two things apart and saying right okay just because you watch porn or struggle with porn doesn't mean you're a full-on addict and just because you're addicted to porn doesn't necessarily make you a sex addict right and I would say the other thing is that sex addicts aren't the same thing as, like, uh, child perpetrators, right?
1: Very different. Yes. So yes.
0: there's one time we were doing a group at a church, and the church approached me and said, hey, I don't want you to do this group anymore because there are children in the building. And I had to explain, like, these guys don't look at child mm-hmm. pornography. They've never harmed any children. This is an adult issue with consenting and other adults. Right. Um Although I would say most people who commit crimes against children in that way are sex addicts. Mm-hmm. But very few sex addicts or porn addicts are child predators.
1: Right, right. I think in um, looking at the addiction piece, one thing that we really focus on is the compulsive behavior and the failed attempts to stop. Um, so let's say someone watches pornography once a month although that's probably not healthy for them overall if they're not doing it compulsively and have not had multiple failed attempts to stop then we wouldn't really consider them an addict right now again whether that's healthy or unhealthy is relative to the person and their belief systems right
0: they're not in our office for us to decide right that. Yeah.
1: right um the betrayal trauma piece is um really a relational trauma that occurs when someone that you rely on that you trust um breaks trust um or breaks the well-being of a relationship and so that can look like infidelity it can look like finding out that your spouse struggles with pornography addiction it can look like um you know constant lies a secret double life those kind of things mm-hmm.
0: So what got you into becoming a therapist or a CSAT particularly? Okay.
1: Um, well, the, the first time I heard about a CSAT was in graduate school from a professor that I did not have any of the s- same belief systems as. And so um, I was very fascinated by it, but thought, okay, I can't work in this field because I, I don't understand how my belief systems would would integrate with this. Mm-hmm. And then, honestly, meeting you and knew that, knowing that you did sex addiction work was the first um, time that I really realized that you can be a Christian and do this type of work. Mm. And I had, until then, separated those, those things in my brain. And then, really, when you said, hey, I have this partner, I don't, know what to, I, <laughs> I don't have capacity to take her on as a client, and I don't really know what to do with her can you look at this workbook and read this book and and try to work with her? That's what really opened my eyes to working with the betrayal trauma piece. And then
0: I forgot that's how it happened. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so, um, after kind of working with her, realizing that it was really a good fit for me personally. Mm -hmm. And I like to think of myself as an advocate for our partners, because I feel like a lot of times they don't have anyone to advocate for them. This is not a topic that's talked about. right? And so I have a passion of educating and advocating for them.
0: Yeah. And you do a really, really good job. I mean, I've loved seeing, uh, you know, in the last two or three years where you've come from being a PLPC to a licensed person to a CSAT. And, and really, I think so much of what we talk about as Christian Christians and counseling is community. And so being able to refer people to you, refer people to the other CSATs in our group and and know that like they're going to get good care they're going to get a Christian perspective they're going to get you know support that's non-shaming that's affirming but that's also challenging I mean one thing I love about you is that you hold people accountable it's not just come in and you know cry about your feelings and your issues and blame your spouse and Mm -hmm. then never realize that maybe you played some role in it or there's Mm -hmm. things you can do to change so I, I mean I really appreciate that about you and, uh, was and that's a,
1: been an evolution for me, oh, too, because... <laughs> we just I had have,
0: evolution this week with it.
1: Right. And I have so much empathy for both the addict and the partner who's been betrayed. But the longer I've done this, the more I've realized it really is part of my job for advocating for them is to also holding them accountable to yep. their end of the relationship as well. Not saying it's their fault. Let me make that clear. But but helping them see how maybe their side of this has impacted the whole.
0: Yeah. And I think the journey of finding fault, like it has its place, but then we'll get to that a little while later, but like its story ends at some point of how many times are we going to find fault? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So that got you into being a CSAT. So what does it take to like learn about being a CSAT and become like an expert on betrayal and Mm what do you have to do?
1: Um, so you have to have a graduate degree in counseling or related field and then there are four uh four and a half trainings over a period of two years that you have to attend and they're very very intense trainings (laughs) um you it's a it's a big learning curve especially five
0: days i think right or four days four and a half five days yeah
1: i can't quite remember um and then you have to do so many supervision hours, individual and group supervision with a CSAT supervisor. Mm-hmm. So you can staff cases um, and talk about the literature that you've read and try to and learned about and try to integrate it into your own practice with your clients.
0: Yeah. And I ask that for the, the, the professionals listening that are therapists that don't really understand it and the people who are coming to get treatment is that a lot of times, you know, you can get a certification online or you can get a certification through a training and it's it's a one-day thing, and now you're this. I mean, even EMDR as amazing as it is, which we'll do a podcast on that. It's three days and then another weekend of three days, and then you're done. Right. Um, and you can get certified and go further, but <clears throat> to use it, I mean, you, you know, that's it. Mm-hmm. And with this, I mean, it's very rigorous. It's long. It's, you right. know.
1: It wasn't just trainings that I showed up to for five days at a time and then just checked it on the back burner when I got home, and it's two years of really in-depth work. And then after that, to keep your certification, you have to do a lot of um, courses or trainings to kind of keep up to date with what the research is and and where the field is uh, growing overall.
0: Right, for sure. And then they have the symposium and the listserv emails and, you know, where it's a community. Yep. And I think we both find it difficult um, as Christians, like you said in the beginning, when you're on these huge, you know, it's it's cer- a certification through the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Sort of about this international group of mm-hmm. people from all walks of life, all religions, all denominations, all you know, talking about sex and addiction. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of, like, things that are still in question and things that we're still figuring out. And that's right. definitely an interesting thing to be a part
1: right. of. And I think it's, it's difficult even locally, too, because although – there's some wonderful therapists in our office. There's there's not any other people that I know who are certified sex addiction therapists in our area. Right. And I think that you can teach yourself these things, but the training, the in-depth training, I think is what really sets it apart.
0: Yeah, so tell me a little bit about why um, being a CSAT or coming to a CSAT, if you're... So betrayal, you're saying someone who has... Um, you know, someone's cheated on them. They found out someone's watched porn. They've had an affair. Um, they've spent money. Maybe mm-hmm. um, any anything else in that list?
1: Yeah, I would say lots of different acting out behaviors: right. uh, massage parlors, um, p- hiring prostitutes. That's another acting out behavior. Um, emotional anonymous affairs. Anonymous sex. Emotional affairs. Yes. Okay. All of
0: that. So if you're if you're listening, and those are things that have happened to you and you've been through. Well we want you to understand and if or if you're a therapist working with clients, we want you to understand that the reason you know, being a CSAT's important is because it's different treating that than you would mm-hmm. other things. Right. So how is that how is that different and kind of what is the approach that's different than your typical therapy?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I- this is just coming from my clients that I've worked with um, just from experience with them. But what I have found is different, especially from the partner side of the betrayal trauma piece is that a lot of times if they've worked with a therapist in the past, after two, three months, they tell the partner, well, you need to basically stop bringing it up and move on if you're going to choose to stay in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's not, that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're basically experiencing PTSD symptoms, so we have to treat the trauma symptoms. We have to help them really regulate out of crisis, so then we can talk about the impact. I think the other big piece, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is the formal disclosure. That is very important for a couple if they're wanting to, and even if they're not wanting to work it out, it can be really important if you're still in that um phase where you're not quite sure if you want to continue the relationship or not. But I find a lot of therapists, they don't work on that formal disclosure piece. So it still leaves the partner with a lot of unanswered questions. And then their trauma symptoms are triggered again and again and again when they think of questions or something happens and they don't have clarity of what has happened in the past. Mm -hmm. So I just find that sometimes therapists who are not trained in this work and they work with couples or individuals and then they can also they can oftentimes bypass or dismiss really important aspects of the healing process
0: yeah and i think they take things i mean we all you know are human so within sexuality or betrayal or if you've had anything like that in your own personal life you can sometimes be biased in a way that you don't even realize you're being to the addict or to the spouse Because I would say another part of it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's a holistic treatment. So Mm -hmm. when we get a spouse in who wants to stay married, then you're considering the addict as well while you're seeing the spouse. Mm -hmm. So you're really thinking systemically. You're thinking, Mm -hmm. okay, I have this lady or this husband who's been betrayed uh, against, but I also have to think how to treat her so she can stay married if she wants to.
1: Right. And I think that one of the big difference makers from having the training versus not is that I now have understanding and empathy for the person who has acted out, or we would consider him an addict, whereas before having all this training, it's very easy to let my bias come in and say, wow, that's terrible. You need, you know, I would never say you need to leave them, but You know, you think it naturally as a human in your Mm -hmm. head when you see someone in pain. And so I think being able to have both perspectives of having empathy and understanding for an addict and also empathy and understanding for the partner who's been betrayed is a, a key piece that this training has helped me understand
0: yeah because if you you know what you can't say now that you've had the training is when you hear a spouse come and say oh my gosh my husband's been looking at porn every day or he's been you know he had a prostitute or he had an affair an emotional affair you can't say oh my gosh how could he do that Mm -hmm. right because in Mm -hmm. the back of your head you're going
1: I know how he could yes
0: exactly and I think I know
1: the neurobiology behind that
0: yeah you have the training and so it makes it gives you more empathy and I think Mm -hmm. as Christians it's a very important key process that we need to realize is like That should be all of our goal Mm -hmm. is to look at people as whole people and children of God. And and instead of catching our, you know, catch ourselves when we think, oh my God, Susie did this. How could she do that? Or Bill treated me this way. How could he do that? And sorry to the Susies and Bills. But the reality is, is that if you know humans and you know sin and you know brokenness, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be surprising.
1: Right. And what I find that after about a year in of working with a betrayed spouse, typically about a year they're able to because we can talk about the piece of why their partner is struggling with these compulsive or harmful behaviors that they are able to develop empathy it takes us a while to get there Mm -hmm. but they're able to do that because um we can talk about it as in the sense of he's a whole person too
0: yeah and, and because they've kept these secrets you know the, the, that means they also didn't tell them about their trauma and their childhood abuse or whatever the thing, reason right. is that made the guy or the girl an addict. Right, yeah. right. Okay, so walk me through um, kind of how the process works. Like if somebody comes in and they're um, a betrayed spouse, what's that typically look like?
1: Yeah, so typically betrayed spouses are in crisis when they come in. Um, even if they don't come in right away when they find out, Even thinking about it and talking about it puts them back in that state of crisis. And so really my job is to help them regulate their feelings, create some safety, um, maybe set some boundaries as best they can, but really just to de-escalate them to get their logical part of their brain working online. They're, Mm -hmm. They're fully in their right brain, which makes total sense based on what they've been through. And my job is to validate that, but also help p- pull them into their left logical brain. So we can talk about things like formal disclosure. So we can talk about things like how long this process takes
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what it's going to look what it might look like for them.
0: Right. And it's pretty staggering when we talk about how long it takes. Cause you, when you yes. tell people, this is going to be a two to three year process, it's pretty overwhelming.
1: Right. Right. And I think that couples, think that it's going to be 6 months and they're going to be totally yeah. better but you know when you have 20 f- 25 years of this we can't just undo that in in 6 months. Mm-hmm. I would say that couples don't typically kind of feel back to normal functionally until maybe about a year but feel connected intimately until about two to three years right and then you're working on maintaining recovery for both of the people in the relationship and so it's a long process
0: yeah and when you say that right i mean i think that's the other point is that we see it as both people being in recovery Mm -hmm. it's not and i think spouses have a really hard time with that right because they're like i don't need to be in recovery Um, he's the one who did it, or Mm -hmm. she's the one who did it. And it's totally not fair. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think that that's something that I've grown as a professional to see that these, my partners or partners in general need their own recovery too. And it isn't fair that they have to do this. They didn't choose to do this. I have total empathy for that. And so I think out of anger, it can feel like I shouldn't have to do this because Mm -hmm. you made this choice Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't. But at the end of the day, whether you stay with your partner or you, or you get out of the relationship, you're still going to need healing. Mm -hmm. And so that's why having individual recovery, I think is so important because regardless if you stay or leave, you're going to need healing for other relationships that you come in contact with. Right. So friendships, not just intimate relationships.
0: Oh yeah. So, so we don't typically have the couple, come in and work do couples counseling no
1: yeah I would say probably for the first um, six months to a year I I preferably say a year individual work is really really important Um, I think in that year period a formal disclosure is crucial even if they say hey I know everything um, the chances are that you don't know everything, and a year into it, when something is disclosed to you or you find something out, we're reopening the wound over and over. And I know we can talk about staggered disclosure in a minute, but mm. that reopening the wound, we're having to start way back at square one, back at the beginning, to build that trust again. And so within that first year, at least, we need to do a formal disclosure Um Obviously, depending on the circumstances, but I would advocate for that. And for partners, sometimes they want to do a formal disclosure immediately. Mm -hmm. Or already did one. Or already did one. Um, And so I want to be respectful of that. I want to advocate for that. But sometimes the person who has done the acting out is not ready to do a formal disclosure. And that puts a partner kind of a waiting period, which is really difficult to navigate.
0: Absolutely. And you know, if you do it too soon the the part the, the person who's acting out lies. Right? right. Because they don't know how to be honest yet. Right. They haven't figured out all the information with their therapist mm-hmm. yet. So then you're you're stuck having to do another mm-hmm. disclosure six months later and that's re traumatizing to the Right. Yeah. Or
1: both people are not at a point where they're equipped to handle the intense emotions that go in with a disclosure and so it also it could oftentimes be more damaging to do it right at the beginning
0: yeah i think that's what can be sort of toxic sometimes in culture in the church and your friendships as somebody comes forward and says i heard bill you know bill you know told me in bible study that you know he was watching porn you need to go home and confess to your wife and and move on it's like well hold on Let's get some information about it first. Let's figure out what you're about to tell. Mm-hmm. Is your wife ready to hear this? You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of things that we do clinically that is in the best interest of both parties. Right. That I think just the layperson for, doesn't know and with mm-hmm. good intentions wants people to confess their sins and be healed, mm-hmm. but doesn't realize like it doesn't have to be tomorrow or today mm-hmm. or immediately.
1: And if a partner doesn't have support in place, it can be even more traumatizing mm-hmm. for her. Because they need space to be able to process what they have just heard.
0: Yeah, because they're like, oh, you know, people are like, well, you need to forgive. Right. You need to forgive your spa- you know, your husband. We all sin. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, hold on. That's not really the question. Mm-hmm. It's how you do that and how you get through the process.
1: Right. One of the things that... Um, I really like from a therapist in Colorado. He says there's two types of forgiveness. There's forgiveness for the facts for what actually happened. And then there's a process of forgiveness for the impact of Mm -hmm. how it's impacted you. And I really, I love that because yes, we can forgive the facts, but we daily have to forgive the impacts.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, you know doing damage control and recovering. It's, mm-hmm. it's two different parts of the forgiveness process, right? Right. You know. Um, okay. So spouse comes in. They're usually stirred up, traumatized. You know, triggered. They have all these things that are going on. And so, what do you do? What do you kind of take them through?
1: Okay. So, typically, um, I, I give them space to share what they're going through. I validate them. Uh, I teach them some emotional regulation tools, some deep breathing, um, some other tools to help them just get through a day, Mm -hmm. really. We talk about uh, if they need to seek psychiatric treatment, we talk about that. It's very understandable. They're having major trauma symptoms and sometimes it feels out of control that you need some, some help psychiatrically. And so we do that and then we start really, working on some boundaries Mm -hmm. to create some safety. A lot of my partners engage in what's called safety-seeking behaviors. And to the outside world, that looks probably like more paranoid behaviors, checking phones, checking emails, checking locations, all of those things. And really, that is they're doing that to validate their reality and try to understand and put the pieces of the puzzle together to understand what is actually happening for Mm -hmm. them. So I really validate that, but we also talk about the impact that that's having on them. Social media is a huge thing that we have to talk about because it's so accessible. It's so addicting. And, um, many of my partners will spend hours researching on social media to try to put the pieces together. So we talk about the impact of that, create some boundaries around those safety-seeking behaviors, and um, then we start talking about disclosure if they haven't already done that and what that looks like. So we, we prep for disclosure um, while the addict is prepping for his, his disclosure so with his let's, therapist. Let's okay. pause there and let's okay. talk about
0: disclosure. So yeah, so a person comes in, you give them the tools they need to calm down, you walk them through maybe some of their behaviors that make sense and mm-hmm. what they've been through but aren't healthy and good for them, no. and then you kind of move into what disclosure, meaning getting, you need the information.
1: Yes, you need the information to stop ruminating and spiraling about what you think might have happened.
0: Yeah, or what you think you need to know.
1: Right, Because some partners want to know everything, and that, understandably so, but sometimes that can be more traumatic to them than knowing kind of the overall theme. So when I say everything, I mean, well, where did you take her? What did y'all do? What car does she drive? What restaurant did y'all eat at? Where did you, where were you intimate? I mean, all these different things that really create these images burned in our brain that we can't get out. And so maybe you you do go to your favorite restaurant, but now knowing that he took this person there, and I say he because that's typically what we deal with, but women also do the betraying.
0: Absolutely, and if you're a betrayed spouse and you're a man, like it's really triggering to hear yeah. she, you know, he all the time mm-hmm. because you're like, this is not my experience. So right. we, we hear that. Also, speaking of triggered, just if you're listening to this and you are one of our clients or you are going through this, you know you might want to take a break from it or pause Mm -hmm. and like if you start getting stirred up listening to this take some breaths and get some water and walk around and because we want this to be educational for those especially who don't know about it but we want it to be impactful and and make you feel known that your experience is valid Mm -hmm. but it's also complicated right so you know
1: and we're talking more in generic terms yes than thinking of specific cases and so you know this doesn't always apply to every situation no for sure this not. is just kind of a basic understanding
0: yeah i just wanted to clarify yeah that. yeah I think that's um important. so disclosure so what we see a lot happens is what's either like we just said somebody says go home and tell your wife so they go home and tell her everything or try to and then what happens is is that nothing happens and then a couple of months later a couple of weeks later like oh well i found this oh yeah i did mm-hmm. that too and then a couple of weeks later, well, I didn't fully tell you what happened with mm-hmm. that. I didn't, you know, and, and that's called a staggered disclosure. Right. So why is that so terrible?
1: So it's, it's really hurtful and harmful because it's kind of like reopening a wound every time that you come back and you say something to add on to, or even to clarify some acting out behavior. And so every time you do that, you send your partner into crisis again. You send her all the way back to square one. And so I think there's a myth of, well, I don't need to tell her anything because then that would crush her and that she wouldn't be able to recover from that or I would lose her. Mm -hmm. Or, and there's a myth of, well, I need to go home and spill my guts on everything. And really the safest place to do that is in a therapeutic environment where you have people who can help you regulate, help your partner regulate help you really walk through the process of asking questions clarifying questions and so the staggered disclosure piece is is giving information in bits and pieces that bring you all the way back to square one again and hurt over and over and over again actually does more damage
0: yeah and and what i've heard is and seen in our office is that and experience probably in my life, um, is that it damages trust more than anything. Yes. Because once you've said, no, this is all of it, no, this is all of it, no, Mm -hmm. this is all of it, that even if it is all of it, the other person logically, as hard as they try to work for their brain, Mm -hmm. they can't believe you.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And trust, I think, is time plus positive experiences. So the more time that can pass by and the more positive experiences you have with a person, then you're able to trust them. But if time passes by and then you drop this big bomb again, and then more time passes by and you drop this big bomb again, then then you're not able to really build trust.
0: Yeah, and that's different than forgiveness. Right. Yeah, I think we mix that up too, right? Yeah. I, I can forgive you, I can separate from you, I can set boundaries mm-hmm. with you. but I don't need to, I don't have to trust you. Right. I can be back in relationship with you and we can be friends again, but that doesn't mean I have to trust you. Mm -hmm. You know, those Mm -hmm. are separate issues. And, and, and through all of this, it's like, man, people come in with these, you know, affairs and with different situations and betrayal. And, and I think because the church isn't equipped and, and like we're saying a lot of professionals aren't equipped, there's been damage from both Mm -hmm. the church community, from the uh, therapy, therapist community, And then we're doing more, you know, repair work Mm -hmm. on on that. So I think that's also what takes so long Mm -hmm. is when people are like, why does this take so long? It's like, well, we got to deconstruct some things even before we get to what we really need to because, you know, this isn't normal conversation or typical, which is why we're trying to educate the community Mm -hmm. on it.
1: And we do have to deconstruct, but we also have to balance just their functioning in everyday life. And that in and of itself is really, really hard too when you're, in crisis and having a lot of trauma symptoms, mm-hmm.
0: and you have to live. I mean, a lot of these people live together still, right? So it's like they're going home every day to, right? You know, try to figure out how to do this. Yep, yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's a lot.
0: Yeah. So disclosure, how does that go, and what's that look like?
1: Okay, so uh, disclosure, we call it formal disclosure. Right. Um, what that looks like is typically an addict and a partner, and I use the term addict lightly in the sense of the person who's acted out. Right. Whether it's one or multiple times, um, they work they come to a mutual agreement that they that they're going to do a, a formal disclosure and then they work individually with their therapist to prepare for that. So um, for the addict side of it, really he or she is working with a therapist to create basically a timeline of acting out behaviors. That may include dates, that may include names, if that's important to a partner, that may include um, types of behavior, um, whether it was protected or unprotected sex, that's a really important piece. Uh, and there, there's some different nuances that that can include based on what the partner feels like she wants to know and needs to know. Mm-hmm. And then on the partner side of things, we are talking about some things that she absolutely wants to know. and needs to either rule out or have confirmed. So we're making a list for the the betrayer's therapist to bring to, to him as he, they're working through their timeline. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about things that she needs or wants to know, why she needs or wants to know those things, if those things are going to be helpful or harmful to her. Um, if she wants to know where or um, who those, those activities um, involved. And so we're working on that. We're basically talking about what's her worst fear. What's her, what's the worst case scenario? And if she does hear that, how is she going to respond? And how is she going to manage that in the room? And then after the disclosure, how is she going to manage that? Um, so we're really trying to prep for those things. I'm discussing with her, you know, what, where do you want to sit on the couch? Where do you want your partner to sit? Where do you want the therapist to sit? To try to give her some sense of control and safety mm-hmm. because she's walking into a really triggering unsafe environment by hearing these things all over again although she probably has felt some of these things and knows some of these things hearing it all at one in one session is really overwhelming i remember at our CSAT training we did a, an exercise to kind of a, a mock disclosure and even though this person's reading off a sheet of paper, my mind completely blanked out and checked out because I was th- I was thinking, this is too much. This is <laughs> right. too much to hear. I can only imagine what it's like for a partner who has experienced this to hear all this information. And so we're really working on, I'm also educating with her, hey, if you check out, I'm gonna try to be in tune with you and pull you back into the conversation. If you need a break, that's okay to ask for.
0: Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think that's what, people need to understand, and, and what we try to do a good job of explaining, this isn't simple. Mm-mm. And it's not gonna be like, you come in and we just do a disclosure. Mm-mm. So it, there's two things that are working. One is yes, it's the details of how we're doing it is what we're describing right now. But how we do it is so relational and empathetic. Yes. And we make sure that you're ready and the client's ready and the spouse is ready on both sides so that this, the disclosure goes well. Right. You know, we're not gonna do the disclosure if all, like this isn't in one session we right? don't
1: want to harm it our clients right at and, all
0: and it's hard for us it's hard i mean it's really we've done these before mm-hmm. together and it's a very emotional
1: mm-hmm. i've often thought oh gosh did we do the wrong thing <laughs> yeah, i've yeah, called sure. you before like did yeah. we do the wrong thing because this was so hard for me as a therapist here i can only imagine how it feels as a partner right um the I, as far as the relational piece um One of the things that I really focus on is tracking with my clients' breathing, tracking with their facial expressions, their body language during a disclosure. Because if I notice that they're looking off or they're not taking deep breaths, they're probably not, they're probably feeling so overloaded that they're needing to kind of mentally escape for a second. And so I'm, I'm trying to track with them to see how they're responding and if we need to take a break.
0: Yeah, and in the meantime, the other therapist, whether that's me or somebody mm-hmm. else, has worked with the part, the addict, right, to know all of this, to be ready for mm-hmm. it, to be confident in themselves, to not be triggered by their own shame, right. So that if the spouse needs them to get up and leave in the middle of this disclosure mm-hmm. or stop the disclosure or whatever, that they're perfectly fine with it. Mm-hmm. And we come back to my office and we process, and then we come back in there. We've done that a bunch mm-hmm. of times, so mm-hmm. you know it's very in depth. It's over the course of you know four or five, six, seven mm-hmm. sessions. You know, it's not just a very quick process to get, you know.
1: Yeah, and we're not just throwing two people in a room saying, tell us everything you've done. Right. You know, this is a, we want this to be a very therapeutic and safe environment.
0: Yeah, it's, it's under the assumption that the person wanting the um, disclosure understands addiction, mm-hmm. understand, mm-hmm. has some empathy for their spot, the spouse, has some empathy for the situation so that it's not, So shameful to them, right? Everything is not personal and offensive, right? We've already done all that work, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah. Uh, And research shows that over ninety percent of couples are happy that they did a disclosure, whether they stayed together or not. Yes, and I think that's a really big piece because a lot of times clients will ask me, like, "Is this really necessary? How helpful is this? This sounds like it would be really harmful." It is really painful and hurtful to hear, but if you want to work on your relationship, we have to start at ground zero with full honesty and transparency and accountability so then we can build on the intimacy piece.
0: Yeah, and I would say the hardest work we do is before the disclosure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I have nothing to go off of. I don't know what's true. We Mm -hmm. don't have all the information, and so you want to affirm, but you don't know if you're affirming something that's wrong or if it's just emotions or Mm -hmm. if it's whatever, so... I mean, I've found that everybody that we do so far that we've done the um, disclosure with has done extraordinarily well afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not easy. Right.
1: And I think from the addict's perspective, being a therapist to an addict, I would say that I would encourage you to do the disclosure for, to integrate and to have accountability and honesty, even if your partner doesn't choose to stay with you after mm-hmm. this. And I think that's a big piece of addiction recovery is having that honesty and integrity.
0: Yeah. You're doing it for yourself, not for your spouse. Right.
1: And then for the spouse, although we don't say, Hey, you need, you have to decide right after disclosure. We typically ask a partner to give it at least a year to make a decision. Um, but it, Provides her or him with the knowledge and the honesty to be able to make it an informed choice mm-hmm. instead of just making an emotional choice.
0: Right. And so during the disclosure, when the spouse is giving all this or the addict is giving all this or non-addict, whatever the situation is, whoever's is doing the disclosure of their behavior, um they're not allowed to really empathize or say anything right Mm -hmm. this is just i'm reading you information it
1: feels super cold i know it feels so cold in the room and as a therapist i'm like oh this is so painful but if we do a lot of interjecting and talking we would never get through the disclosure
0: yeah and they become then they make it about them and they're the one that's supposed to be taking full responsibility in this moment
1: right right and so Yes, if a partner needs a break, if an addict needs a break, that's totally understandable. But we process it afterwards and not necessarily during.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And that's mainly, I mean, it's for both of them, I think. It's just different, right. different reasons for it. Right. Um, okay. So then you do the disclosure, you read this timeline, you get all the information out. Usually we get up and leave and take a break. We come back in and then what is this, the
1: so during the break the 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 partner and i work on creating clarifying questions so again you know receiving all of this information can feel really overwhelming sometimes they haven't maybe they haven't tracked fully with what was disclosed so they have questions there's still bits and pieces that don't make sense to them so I write down all of the questions that a partner has and we talk about whether or not this is beneficial for them to know or not Mm -hmm. and then we then invite the therapist and the the addict back in and and ask the questions and it's just kind of like a matter of fact answer which again feels really cold as a as a warm, empathetic therapist, and what you typically do on a daily basis, but it's this is just information right. that we're getting, and so then this af- is a
0: particular tool that we're using, right? Yeah.
1: And so then after we ask our questions, um, they've already made a safety kind of follow-up plan of what they're going to do after the disclosure, whether that's one person stays at home, one person um, stays at a hotel, the kit there's arrangements for kids. Uh, maybe we choose to do this on a Thursday, so then they ha- or a Friday, so then they have the weekend to decompress and un- and process what happened. We've already taken care of all that, and so then they fall fo- they follow through with their individual plans. And um, sometimes that's them spending time together. Sometimes it's not. It just is it, it? It's individualized. And so then I usually um, have a follow up session with whoever I'm working with at the time. Just. The following day to process what that was like for them and then we kind of schedule weekly appointments after that or Mm. or more so if needed
0: what happens if a person just does not believe it
1: does not believe the The disclosure disclosure. well that happens yeah Uh uh so one of the tools that we have here at our office is called eye detect it's a computerized polygraph machine that tracks eye movements and um that's typically what we use for to to clarify and really verify the information on the disclosure is accurate, mm-hmm. um, I think there's a debate whether you should do it before or after I think it's choice I think it's prefer you know person's choice. I think it's important to do it before to go in and say okay, yeah, I've done this polygraph, the big ticket items that I'm sharing with my partner, I'm on, I'm being honest we've about. We've already verified Right. It. We've yeah. already verified that. I'm being honest about it. So then if a partner says, well, I can't believe anything he says, well, that takes some processing for the therapist and her to work through. Mm-hmm. But we also have this polygraph that says, hey, we verified this. And although it's really hard to know that these things actually happened and that's going to take some time for it to sink in we do have verification
0: yeah that's good yeah i think it's it's interesting and i and i would want people to hear like the polygraph isn't to catch the person no right i mean we're using it in a therapeutic way so whoever the addict is and we prep them for it in the same Mm -hmm. way we prep the spouse for the kids or whoever's Mm -hmm. involved in the disclosure and they know, like, these are things you've, they're true, and, mm-hmm. you know, and you've already come in and talked about it. We've already processed these questions. You're not surprised by it. Right. There's not going to be secret questions asked to you that you then now have to answer and, you know, right. are surprised by.
1: Yeah. And I think what I like about Eye Detect is that it's not like a typical polygraph where you're hooked up to all this machinery and you're really, really nervous. It's literally just tracking your eye movements. And also, we don't make the test. We have a company that, creates all the algorithms and test questions um, based on their professional knowledge and then upload the, the test to the computer. Yeah. So I think that takes some of the personal side of that out.
0: That's awesome. Um, what are some things, so that's kind of formal disclosure, and then the next couple of years is what?
1: Well, after formal disclosure, it takes some time to process that individually. Um, I oftentimes like to move into working with EMDR Uh, with some of my clients because sometimes they have pictures or memories of things that they feel like they're very intrusive and they can't get them out of their brain. And so a lot of times, if we can do some EMDR around that, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is what that means. It's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. Um, I love when people call it EDMR. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. I did too when I first or heard of it. or yes. whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but I like to use that to help a client kind of move past those intrusive thoughts. And every case is individualized. So sometimes I need to spend months doing EMDR. Sometimes partners, Um, can regulate themselves a little bit easier to where they can move into some couple's work not too far after the disclosure. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that it's really important for a couple to continue doing individual work but also integrating some couple's work uh, because they're typically in a healthier place and understand their individual struggles and how, how that impacts them. But the couple's work is really important because then they can bring that in a safe space and say, hey, when you said this, it made me feel like this. Or Mm -hmm. when you did this, this is what came up for me. And typically, the couples that we work with don't really have those skills to be able to navigate these types of conversations if they haven't done some couple's work.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point. So one of the things we know, and just for people listening, you know, is that they didn't get here on their own right Right. Is that most of us get married with family of origin issues coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. traumas sexual abuse views of sexuality that are negative or positive or Mm -hmm. you know dysfunctional and then we get married and we never talk about those because we're not even aware that they're off or we're aware of them but we're so ashamed we're not going to talk about them Mm -hmm. and then these things start to happen so most people we're dealing with the addiction and the the betrayal and, and you know the trauma from all that, and then after a year year and a half, we can finally get into like okay, how did these family like mm-hmm. all this stuff I just said? Right. Now we got to work on that, right? Because it was never addressed.
1: And I think that it's important especially working with c sets that we do a lot of individual work that first year to make to help our clients become aware oh i do have childhood trauma oh you know this thing in my life that i didn't really think affected me actually really did and starting to pull some of that unconscious behavior to the awareness so that i can understand as an individual oh wait these are this is why I do these things mm-hmm. or this is why I behave this way. So then if both people have done some of that work individually, when we come to couple session, they're they're for, for the first time talking about how these things impact them and how they're that's playing out in the dynamics of their relationship.
0: Yeah, and it's so beautiful to see a partner, you know they do they go through all this year, they go through the disclosure and then the the partner, the addict, let's say says well, Part of my story is I was sexually abused or I saw porn at eight years old or mm-hmm. you know, I was exposed to X, Y, and Z. And instead of that doesn't matter because you hurt me, mm-hmm. the spouse is like, Oh my gosh, like I'm so sorry, that's awful. I could see why that led to you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm and there's like this beautiful repair that happens because mm-hmm. now that's really what the addicts wanted the whole time right mm-hmm. because we call addict you know sexual addiction an intimacy disorder mm-hmm. and so it's really about not about sex it's about not knowing how to be intimate with your partner and connect yeah and, and find connection. And we're
1: not just talking about physical intimacy right. we're talking mainly about emotional intimacy Absolutely and I will say for my partners who are listening out there, <laughs> you may get a little triggered by what Clint just said in the sense of we're not saying that because someone has childhood trauma, it is okay for them to do these behaviors Absolutely. because that's all my partners get mad whenever, especially <laughs> at the beginning, when I try to help them kind of move a little bit in toward empathy based on their partner's childhood history. We're saying that it totally makes sense that you feel angry and that you can't go there yet. Mm -hmm. But I think the goal is to, as you work your own recovery, be able to go there, you know, in due season.
0: Yeah, that's why we're talking about a year and a half. Right. right? If you're listening, remember, this is not the first month. No. You know, we're not going to say when your spouse comes in, well, hold on, they have childhood trauma. Right. Usually it takes us that long to get that out of the the addict as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they're Mm -hmm. working their own plan. Um, so tell us kind of uh, the two resources. You know, we take um, our addicts through Facing the Shadow, mm-hmm. and you guys take the the trail spouse through.
1: Yeah. So the the kind of the uh, book that has all this information about it for partners it's just called mending a shattered heart by stephanie carnes that's the book now the workbook is called facing heartbreak by mm-hmm. stephanie carnes so we typically work through those two resources a lot there's a lot of other resources i really love there's a book called intimate deception that is from a christian perspective written by a therapist who has also experienced betrayal i don't what's really what's her name um sherry keffer yeah that's right and I really like her Shout material. Shout out to Dr. Kemper. Yeah. Uh, so I really like her material as well. And then just as I've led some groups, and we can talk about this too, there's some other resources kind of dabbling in the codependency language that I really like that fit for my partners. Now, I'm not calling every partner codependent. I don't believe that. But yeah. I think that there are similar traits in the language can help You understand why you do the things you do.
0: Absolutely. And there's a lot of symptoms that are similar, Mm -hmm. you know, on both sides. I mean, there's a lot of my spouses that are codependent. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not a dirty word. It's just Mm -hmm. part of the process when you go through these things Mm -hmm. and you have unhealthy attachments and you have trauma and you have, you know, you've been through a divorced family and you have all these things.
1: And there's a lot of addicts who are codependent too yeah so oh absolutely yeah.
0: you know most of them I mean yeah. i would say both it's not it's not a it's not a label we use to say you're bad it's no. a label we use to say this makes sense based on mm-hmm. what you've been through and
1: really give language yes. to some of these behaviors i really don't care what you call it i just i think it's important to have the language and the understanding of of the patterns and behaviors
0: right and our whole goal is shame reduction for right. both both parties like Shame meaning you're terrible, you're uniquely broken, you're bad. You you are unique in the fact that no one else does what you do or mm-hmm. responds to that. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the symptoms? Like if somebody's out there and they're like, well, is this betrayal? Is this not betrayal? How do I know if this is a good fit for me? What mm-hmm. What are some of the things that that looks like?
1: So clarify that with like me. If you're like a,
0: if you're a spouse or a, a woman or a like man. Like the trauma symptoms? Yeah, and somebody's like, like okay. cheated on you. Yeah. And you're like, well am I really traumatized? Do Would I fit in this group or this category? Sure.
1: Yeah, so I kind of follow the betrayal trauma symptoms similar to the PTSD symptoms. So the first symptom is kind of, it's either direct exposure or witnessing to a threatened death or injury. And so for someone who's been through betrayal trauma, that that probably sounds really confusing, but when you've been through betrayal... Especially if your spouse has acted out with other people, it is a direct threat to you, to Mm -hmm. your health. Um, you know, this is a hard topic that a lot of people don't talk about, but it's important to go get tested for STDs. That's an important part of re- yes. your recovery. And that's a really painful thing to have to talk about or think about as an individual. But that is that can be kind of a direct threat to your own health, although it's not life or death in the moment usually. Physically. It could be. Yeah. Right. So I would say that that's probably the first criteria. And then the second criteria is these involuntary and intrusive memories and so that may look like for a partner flashbacks nightmares intrusive thoughts um constantly trying to understand what happened and how it happened and when it happened and where it happened and really trying to again those safety-seeking behaviors yeah obsessing really and not being able to control it Mm -hmm. and then the third criteria i would say that that would be the thoughts and feelings that come up based on external reminders. So if you go to a certain place, um, or you hear a certain song or watch a certain movie that you want to completely avoid all of those things because they bring up those triggers for you or that you try to distract yourself from thinking or feeling certain things instead of being able to have a safe space to fit, to sit in that and work through it. Um, and then the the next criteria would be negative changes in thoughts and moods and that would be more so along the lines of those shaming beliefs or shaming thoughts of well i'm not good enough my body doesn't look good enough i'm not as pretty as her i'm not as fit as her um really just
0: i didn't do what he wanted sexually right right
1: we didn't have enough sex he said i was you know, I was overweight and it wasn't attracted to me. Those kind of negative thoughts that we have about ourselves. And then the the last one would be the changes in kind of the way you react to things. And so typically when someone's been through trauma, they are hyper aware They're and they can be hyper aroused in the sense of um, trying to constantly stay safe. I kind of call it like we have an alarm system in our brain that tells us when we feel unsafe or when... Uh, We feel uncomfortable or when we don't like something. And when you've been through trauma, that alarm system goes haywire and it goes off all the time. Mm -hmm. And...
0: Yeah, we kind of think of it as this watchdog, right? And so right. there's this fence around your brain and your body and your mind. And typically, the dog kind of goes around the fence and yaps at stuff whenever mm-hmm. there's a problem. Mm-hmm. But when there's a major trauma like this, the dog's just spinning, can't differentiate. You know, barking at everything. It doesn't matter if it you know looks safe or doesn't look safe.
1: Right. And so it's just this your brain's alarm system of safety and fear go haywire, and you can't really differentiate. Now, one thing that I would like to to touch on is a lot of times the partners I work with say things like, well, I've, I've, I have felt something was off. In the past, I felt something was off, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I may have asked about it. They denied it. They called me crazy. So I didn't really push the issue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And And so for a woman, if you're a believer, you can call that the Holy Spirit. If you're not a believer, you might call it intuition, but it's kind of this gut feeling that something feels off, even if you're not a woman, even if you're a man, just you feel this disconnection, but you don't know how to quite put words to it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times because they've denied that for so long, any moment when they have that feeling after finding out that they've been betrayed, they immediately react to it. And so... Although it makes total sense, we're trying to, in therapy, get that alarm system back online and working properly. Absolutely. And also being able to teach them to lean into those feelings in a healthy way uh-huh. and not react in anger or completely shut down.
0: Yeah, that it's not about always being comfortable. And right. being uncomfortable doesn't mean in danger.
1: Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is that all of them? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about uh, one thing that came to my mind when you were talking about it is, you know, there's a term for what you were describing when a partner comes to, hey, are you on your phone watching something inappropriate? Or they come in, they try to catch mm-hmm. them, and then denial, 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 and that is...
1: Gaslighting. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Uh I think that gaslighting is such a hard thing to nail down because it feels... I mean, what your partner says to you, you think is true. And you if want they to call, believe it. Yeah. If they call you crazy because they're not acting out and you think they are, like, of course you want to believe that they're not acting yeah. out. And, and I think that's where a lot of my partners come so confused. And they do those safety-seeking behaviors because they're trying to validate their reality. Yeah. And it makes total sense. If you've been gaslighted for a really long time,
0: right? Yeah. So just to clarify, gaslighting is when somebody comes to you and is like asking you about, um, you know, something you're doing, and you lie to them, and you tell them they're crazy.
1: You turn it back around on them. Yeah,
0: it's your fault. You're crazy. Mm -hmm. You're you're you know obsessed. You're ridiculous. Like I would never do this. Mm -hmm. And then months later, you know, they find out that you have been doing Mm -hmm. it, and it comes from a film. I can't remember what year it was. I think it's like the 50s or something like that. Yeah, it's an old film. And the husband. You know, it was taking, I think it's
1: called gaslight. Yeah,
0: I think it is. is mm-hmm. The husband's taking pictures off the wall and turning the lamps off and dirtying the house, and you know the the wife comes home and he's like, "Why'd you do this?" And mm-hmm. over and over and over again. By the end of the film, she's lost her mind because he's, you know, tricked her into th- believing right. that she's crazy.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So that's where I really try to work with women. Um, yes, let's work on validate your validating your reality. But let's really talk it through in a logical sense and not just focus on the emotional piece of that, too, and trying to get that alarm system back online.
0: Yeah. One thing um, that I know is super helpful that we need to talk about is the group work too. Mm -hmm. So we have individual work that we have for partners and for addicts, and then we have group work. So what's the benefit? When do you start and what's the benefit of group? Because you have how many groups going?
1: I have two groups going. Um, One group that I've been meeting with for almost two years, I think. And people have kind of come and gone, but I've had some people stick through it for the majority of the time. And Um, That group is a little bit more advanced because we're working into the we've done kind of the crisis management, the betrayal trauma piece, the educating, and now we're moving into the individual trauma, their coping behaviors, how it's impacting them and their relationship. My other group is more of a newer group that I'm teaching them about what betrayal trauma is, what is trauma in general, how does it impact them, how do we set boundaries, those kinds of conversations, but group work is really important because... When you're going through betrayal, whether a man or a woman, it feels so isolating. I mean, the church is not talking about it. Our culture is saying it's totally okay. So you have these extreme messages. Either we don't talk about it or we completely normalize it. Mm -hmm. And I find that a group... I call my group we are not the husband bashing group. Right. I have to make that preference for them because they come in super angry and hurt. Mm-hmm. And so although it's a safe place for them to get out their feelings, I am challenging them to work their own individual recovery. And it's so important because they I mean the reason I formed the group is that so that they could have connection with other people who've gone through similar things like this and although their stories are different the feelings of betrayal are same yeah and so having people who understand and empathize and can say yeah me too i struggle with that too or yeah that same thing happened to me can be really validating and healing
0: yeah because it doesn't make them feel crazy anymore right right? it's like these these behaviors aren't unique to you Mm -hmm. your story is very unique What you've been through is very unique but the way you respond to it there's seven other women eight other Mm -hmm. women in the room with you who are doing the same thing for the same reasons. It just looks a little different on varying degrees. Right.
1: The other thing that I love about group work is that there's people from all different um, points of the journey so there's people who are two years into this six months three months into this and so they really kind of learn from each other and the people who've been in the group longer and who have longer recovery can look back and say wow you know i have done a lot of work to help myself heal and and be in recovery and for the people who are newer can look to the people who've been in it longer and say wow this you know, this is where I can be. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, my story is different and maybe I want things to look differently for me, but this is where I can work to be.
0: Absolutely. In recovery. It reminds me, I was thinking, it reminds me of being when we went to Afghanistan, your first there, every little noise and every little thing is you're jumping and ducking Mm -hmm. and getting behind stuff. And, and I remember, you know, the last month before we leave this, this new group of guys comes in on a truck and this mortar round goes off and they all jump and fall down and we're all laughing, walking down the street because you know we're used to it. We mm-hmm. know what to expect. We know what's safe and what's not safe. Right. But they have no clue. Right. And we see that in both of our groups is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nice to have people on different levels so they can yep. walk each other along. But also, it's mm-hmm. super validating to you, like you said, because you've been through it, and mm-hmm. now you're not doing those things. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. I love group work. Yeah, it's love awesome. Love it.
0: And it, it's super helpful for me because, you know, whether it's you or Lenita or Ross or Natasha or Haseem or any of the C sets that we have, um, I can trust that you're doing what's best for the marriage if that's what they're working on Mm -hmm. you know even if that's what's best for the wife at the time it's still Mm -hmm. what's best for the marriage and so yeah you're not the addict bashing group like and i know that because i you know i have the spouses come in they're like oh they're they're probably talking to whitney you Mm -hmm. know and i'm like no i can promise you whitney is empathizing with them but also Mm -hmm. holding them accountable i mean
1: i would say my group partners get mad at me sometimes (laughs) because i you know i bring them back to okay we've talked about the cycle of addiction. Based off of what you're experiencing, where does that fall in the cycle of addiction? You know, how, how can you empathize with the knowledge that you now have? They don't like to hear that. Mm-hmm. They don't like to hear that it's their own recovery, too, that they're having to walk.
0: Right. And so that, that takes us to the conversation of, and I'll preface for all my spouses listening or addicts listening, you know, this is not, maybe this isn't where you're at and you're not ready and that's okay. You don't, this is not a, you have to do this. But one of the things we've been talking about recently um, and Olivia Mason and I talked about, uh, she's our CSAT over in Ruston, is this idea of how do you get people unstuck and out of the victim seat? And I, you know, I've been thinking about this for a year or two when it comes to our culture, when it comes to all the things that we're seeing. You know, how do you use psychology and validate people's feelings mm-hmm. and meet them where they're at, but not say you have no responsibility and mm-hmm. move them out of victimhood whether it's racism or systemic racism or policing or who you're voting for or whatever abortion or whatever issue it is that you've been through that's traumatic or that somebody's hurt you, Mm -hmm. abuse, how do you move out of victimhood into personal responsibility when something was done to you that's not your fault? Mm -hmm. And that's a hard language to to use because you don't want to shame the spouse and say this was your fault. And So to clarify, someone doing something, abusing you, being racist against you, cheating on you. It is not your fault. There's mm-hmm. nothing you, you did to make them make that choice. They're fully responsible. Right. What we're talking about is at what point do we stop blaming them for all of our um, emotional experiences
1: or our choices? Yes. Yeah.
0: And behavior. So we've kind of come up, you know, we talked about this, uh, last week and, and recently is the difference between being triggered and being reactive. Mm-hmm. So can mm-hmm. you dive into that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I, i would say feeling triggered is a real thing and one of the other therapists in our office jokes like oh you've been to see whitney because you use the word triggered like 20 million times (laughs) and you know yes it's a real thing do i think we should stay triggered all the time no i think we should move and work through that Um, but it does help when a partner first comes in it helps give language to what they're experiencing and so feeling triggered i would say is is this idea of feeling emotionally disturbed, upset, overwhelmed, hurt based on things that you are not expecting to happen?
0: Yeah, and that you don't know. Right,
1: that you don't know, that you weren't expecting to happen. Um, you know, it could be as simple as I'm watching a movie and all of a sudden there's a sex scene in it, or there's a scene where one of the people goes and has an affair. That is something that you typically, unless you read the movie you know, description before you watch it.
0: Which you should, common sense yes, media. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. Um, but that is, especially early on in recovery, that is something that most partners don't even think to to do. And right. so it is really triggering because you weren't expecting it, you weren't expecting it. Um, how it made you feel I mean you weren't expecting to deal with any of that so yes it is very triggering
0: right so they get whiplash and they feel like it's out of left field right they don't even know what's happening and
1: it brings them back all over to the beginning of their experiences and what they've been through and it can lead back into those intrusive thoughts and flashbacks that we've talked about I think where the point that it turns reactive is when you have the tools the knowledge and the skills to be able to manage those triggers and you choose not to do that right and so
0: and you can't choose that when you don't know
1: right and so what we do in therapy a lot is and in group is talk about what those triggers are and talk about how to work through them how to manage them how to deal with them because they're going to happen and i would say about a year in is when you're at the point where you are aware enough to know things that are absolutely disturbing and upsetting to you that you just can't handle right now
0: yeah and you shouldn't put yourself in those positions right it would be nice if you didn't
1: right and so but after about a year is kind of the point where we have to make a shift of okay am i going to move from the victim seat to now taking personal responsibility to whether that's my own responsibility to my recovery my responsibility of my choice to stay in this relationship or choice to get out of the relationship at some point it becomes a choice now it wasn't a choice that this happened to you absolutely not but when you've become educated and aware on what your feelings are what your behaviors are and how things around you impact you then i would say it can turn reactionary
0: yeah and on the other side just a a affirm. like i'm doing the same and i work with betrayed spouses too like i do both sides just like you do but in this scenario i'm dealing with the addict I'm working the same thing, like, okay, because if we're going to play the blame game,
3: mm-hmm.
0: right, if we're going to say whose fault was it or mm-hmm. when, when did I have choice, well, you didn't have choice that your spouse cheated on you. They didn't have choice that they were exposed to porn at eight years old.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, well, why'd that happen? Well, my parents didn't have the education, the knowledge, the awareness, or they were unhealthy themselves. Well, why is that? Well, their parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can go back from a Christian's perspective all the way it's to Adam sin. and Eve. Yeah. yeah. And go, okay, well, fault is sin. Fault mm-hmm. is the human condition. Fault mm-hmm. is that we're all broken and all capable of doing things if we don't get the things that we need. Right. You know, the things that God intended for us to receive as a family, as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're going to find fault forever, that fault is going to be within ourselves, mm-hmm. within our own brokenness. Mm-hmm. And pride says, I would never do that. Right but the reality of therapy after a year and a half is you realize oh if i had my husband or wife's experiences i actually would have done that mm-hmm. and that makes sense to me mm-hmm. so now i can stop being the victim and realize that yes this happened to me but things happened to them as well right things out of their control things that they didn't have mm-hmm. choice and so choice was removed by all from all of mm-hmm. us because of sin
1: and as far as on a partner's end of things is i don't think partners are aware that And they don't have a choice that they are oftentimes living in denial of these feelings that, oh, something feels off, but I don't really know quite what that is and what to do with that. And so I'm just not going to push the issue. Well, because you don't have awareness that that is actually denial, then we're not holding you accountable to that but when you become aware of it yes we're saying it's your choice if you choose not to approach your spouse as something about something that feels off or feels uncomfortable to you or doesn't make sense to you kind of the same thing with an addict you know they don't know why they're doing the things that they do, but when they become aware of why they're doing the things that they do, then they make a choice.
0: Yeah, you chose to get up at 11 o'clock and open your laptop. Right. You, you didn't know that in the past. You genuinely were just trying to do some work. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is after we've done recovery and we've done the work, you, mm-hmm. you know that you you have to not do those things. Right. And if you put yourself in those positions you're responsible for Mm -hmm. what happens and you weren't in the beginning, but now you are. And that's just this fine dance that we're, we're trying to Mm still even in our, in our world uh, as clinicians help people figure out. And I think it's in a society it's a great conversation because if you go out and deal with somebody who's, you know, against you, Mm -hmm. like let's say it's a political thing and you get into a conversation with someone who's a Democrat or Republican right now Mm -hmm. and you, without them choosing to, you try to start this debate and this conversation and they say something that you don't like or that upsets you or that is against your moral being, you're reactive. You chose to put yourself in that situation mm-hmm. and ha- engage in this conversation and now you can't blame them for their views and their, their responses. You can only take responsibility like, oh, I wasn't ready for that. It it mm-hmm. triggered me, it upset me, mm-hmm. but then I chose to react and be angry and, and spit things right. back. and so. I mean, I just don't think we have these conversations in society. Like, right. We don't make it make sense.
1: Well, and as far as for partners who are listening to this, again, this is not something I think it would be healthy for a therapist to force you to do. No, not it's at not, all. I mean, we do not force partners to take responsibility for for themselves until really we've developed such a close therapeutic relationship that has a lot of trust in it that we can gently and kindly say, hey, That makes total sense to me why you're feeling upset or you're feeling triggered or whatever. But let's also look and see why you did that or why you didn't do that and what that meant for you and how were you trying to protect yourself Mm -hmm. and all of these different questions to really shine the light inward to say, okay, what is what is this about me that I do these behaviors or I have these patterns to then work on taking responsibility? It's not like someone, you're not going to come in here and we're going to put the fist down and say, you know, you did it wrong. You didn't take responsibility, yeah. but we're going to gently guide you to that point. While also keeping in context that you didn't really choose for all this to happen
0: absolutely yeah it's a build up to that point right like we have all this information and all this trust and all this mm-hmm. report before we even get to that yes and it's kind of funny because we're doing it now on the podcast like this is what people don't do is is hey is is use caveats and say what I don't mean is this mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to do that in session. Oh, yes. You know, we're not going to. Yeah, we're going to clarify. We're going to give caveats. We're going to be explicit Mm -hmm. in what I mean and what I don't mean.
1: And again, it's such an individualized journey that we're talking in general terms. Yeah. But we're gonna meet you where you are
0: for sure. And if it's four years before you can do that, absolutely. that's fine with us. We don't care. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a process. It's a journey. It's it's uh, man, not it's, an event. It's an
1: honor to walk through
0: absolutely this
1: with people and walk alongside them.
0: And I mean, I've seen man, and I know you have too, together the bravest people. Oh,
3: so and, brave
0: and just amazingly strong women and men who come in and who bear their souls and who. I mean, it's so beautiful when they do it. I mean, it almost mm-hmm. it m- makes me want to cry every time. We've left like just so mm-hmm. emotional from what God can do in repair work mm-hmm. that people can you know be in affairs for their entire marriage since they were engaged. They can you know have multiple partners. They can have all this lies, in, in fifteen years, seventeen years, twenty years, thirty years, and then in a year or two, have repaired that, restored mm-hmm. that. There's trust. And I know, I know for me, people say, we have a better marriage than we ever had. Mm -hmm. They're not happy that they went through all of this, but the reality is, is, is like scripture says, God makes beauty from ashes. Mm -hmm. And so even though he didn't want them to go through this, to learn that he didn't cause this to happen for them to learn it. There's two options, right? God to do nothing with it or God to use it for his glory Mm -hmm. and their good.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's
0: a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see. What else? What I miss?
1: I had something come up in my brain, but I just forgot it. Yeah, so it's if okay. it comes Recovering back to me, I'll Oh, I think I wanted to talk about, you know, what true repentance and change is. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times um, I see kind of this run around in relationships of, I've gone to therapy, you know, a couple times and I've truly changed. <laughs> and whether it's the partner or the person who has acted Pretty out, Sure. That's great. But they continue to do hurtful, harmful behavior. Although they may not be acting out sexually, they're still not building intimacy and trust. Yeah. And so I think, and I've seen it with my own two eyes, couples who fare the best in recovery are people who are willing to stop blaming the other person and to take a look inside of themselves and say, okay, what was my role in this? What Mm -hmm. was my part in this? And so I think that's an important piece. The other important piece I feel like is if you're really ready to truly repent and change, meaning apologize for what you have done, do all the the steps that need to be done to to start from ground zero to build back up trust. But if you're constantly doing things that you say one thing and you're not, and you're doing the opposite, it's really going to impact the ability for the the individuals to heal and the couple to heal um, because they don't line up yeah and so I feel like it's really important just to say true repentance is when you're not perfect but you are working and changing some of those hurtful behaviors. Even if you're not fully aware of all of them yet, that you're willing and open to work on them instead of just saying, well, you're just, again, gaslighting, you're just crazy, you're making this up, you're never going to get better.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's so good. And on both sides, because then you, you, as the spouse, you have to realize, like, if the person has to be perfect for Mm -hmm. you to trust them, you're never going to.
1: Nope. Never.
0: Right, that perfection is not the goal of recovery. Mm -hmm. Recovery and sobriety are two different things.
1: Honesty, I think, is the goal of recovery. Honesty and integrity. Yeah, I mean,
0: I've had so many, and you have too, so many spouses say, listen, I mean, I don't want him to watch porn. I don't want him to do these things. But if he does and he tells me, then he's mm-hmm. in the recovery process. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna figure out what happened in their life that, you know, what, you know, uh, barriers or uh, boundaries were let down that allowed them to get there. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna like it, we're gonna have to work through that, mm-hmm. but just don't lie to me. Mm-hmm. You know, if you accidentally slipped up and went somewhere, did something or started to go somewhere, don't lie.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: if you- Right, the lying some,
1: is the worst yeah, part. Yeah, you,
0: t- you took some cash out, if you've been through this whole process for a year and a half, two years, mm-hmm. You got to get to a point where the honesty is all mm-hmm. that matters, and that's so hard and the good thing in therapy is we're always shaping that back. Why weren't you honest right? Why couldn't you tell the truth? Oh, well, I felt like they were going to reject me they mm-hmm. weren't going to love me, they were going to see me poorly. Well, has that happened in two years? Mm-hmm. Well, no, right, so where's that come from? Oh my dad blah 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 right and it's just this beautiful process of continuing the recovery journey,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it it is difficult
1: and I don't want you know any of the partners who are listening to this to feel shame if you feel like you can't handle um, reconciling a relationship I mean that it is a very it's a lot of hard work it's just depending on what the history has been Um, now of course I think that God's heart is for us to move towards reconciliation but I also think that women feel shame or part, betr- people who have been betrayed feel a lot of shame if they think, I, I just can't I can't do that based on what I've been through, whether it's abuse or yeah. you know, consistent chronic betrayal um, where someone is constantly out of recovery.
0: Yeah, and I think what you're talking about to be explicit is like, should I divorce them sure. and leave them and yeah. get out of here? And I think as Christians, again... We don't talk very much about right. this openly and so it's difficult and And
1: it's not a therapist's role to tell you whether or not you should get divorced. No, we're not, not gonna all. tell you It's between you, know, you and
0: God. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the options. Yeah. You know and I'm what big the realities about saying, would be. here are the three options that you have. Mm-hmm. You can stay together, you can keep doing this work, you can get out of it. Here are the consequences and what that's gonna look for like for you those. and your children and and you're mm-hmm. gonna have to choose
1: what you can live with. What
0: you can live with, what you're capable of. Mm-hmm. But your worth and value, your forgiveness in Christ, your sanctification process with the Lord doesn't change based on those right. choices. Right. Christ died for all of that. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if you believe in Jesus and you have been sanctified and you have asked him to come in and live with you and process with you and the Holy Spirit is in you, then God is looking down and he is seeing Jesus. He mm-hmm. is seeing you standing in his you know, his righteousness, not right. anything else. and
1: Not your works. Right. Yeah.
0: And so it's so hard because people want to know what to do. What's mm-hmm. the right thing as a Christian? Can mm-hmm. I divorce in this situation? Well, Scripture's clear. Like, mm-hmm. you know, adultery, abuse, these are the things you that can. you can. Yeah, You know, and then God quickly says, but I hate divorce. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's because it is so damaging and mm-hmm. so emotionally draining and there are long-term consequences. Mm-hmm. So we just want to help people think through that process, through that, Ask the questions so that whatever choice they make at the end, they're glad they made it. They understand why they made mm-hmm. it. And they're not on the other side going, ah, oh, I missed these 20 things that I wish right. I would have known then. It's not
1: a reactive choice. Yes, yeah. which
0: goes back to... Yeah,
1: everything that we were talking about. Yeah, learning
0: how <laughs> to do the process, take your time. And so mm-hmm. I want people to understand that's why it takes two or three years, mm-hmm. you know, and that two or three years is gonna make up for the next 50 of your life for most people. I mean, if it's 20 year olds, 30 year olds coming in, they have the opportunity for 40 more years of marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget that we're so, we're in so much pain, we want the pain to stop. We want to be able to make a decision, and we're like, I can't bear this. I can't deal with this. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I would say is that like therapeutic separation or legal separation is still an option in mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. fully divorcing and um, or staying together in the same house. Right. So if it's a circumstance in which you know somebody feels physically or emotionally unsafe, it's repetitive, it won't happen. But they they understand it. They've been seeing you, and you're an amazing therapist, and you've helped them to get there. And they're like, I don't want to divorce. I want to see my grandkids. I want to see my kids. I want to do these things then you can move out and you can Mm -hmm. live in a different space and you can, you know, and sometimes that's, I mean, we've done this with couples. Sometimes that's the best thing to happen Mm -hmm. because they get some space and they realize, oh man, I want to be with this person Mm -hmm. or they get some space and they realize, oh, I was triggered and I was doing this and I was Mm -hmm. adding to it and the addict goes, oh man, you know, whatever. But, and then they come back together and we work through the process.
1: Well, and I think the big key word is space. Yeah. Like space and time to even be able to think and feel and process what's going on. Because when we're in a really, I'm going to say the word triggering environment, yeah, yeah. or in a really difficult situation, it's hard to calm our brain down enough to really think through what does this mean for me, what would this choice mean for me, or what would this choice mean for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, you laugh at the whole triggering thing, and that is the problem. I mean, I mean, I know we've laughed a lot, a lot about it, about it, but like that's where we're at in society: is that you're either a snowflake because you use the word triggered, and you need a pizza party. Or the facts don't care about your feelings, mm-hmm. and for us as Christians and us for th- as therapists, it's both. We
1: care about both. Yeah, it's, absolutely. We want
0: you to understand the facts through your feelings, so you can live authentically. You can, you know, make reasonable requests. You can set good boundaries. Mm-hmm. You can have truth and grace, just like Christ did. You mm-hmm. can speak that way. You can live that way, um, and I think that you know is what be- betrayal recovery and addiction recovery is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, resources.
1: Yeah, um, I would say, again, the Mending the Shattered Heart book and Facing Heartbreak by Stephanie Carnes. I wrote a blog on our our website about healing after betrayal trauma. Mm -hmm. If you want to check out more info on that. Um, I really love Sherry Keffer's book, Intimate Deception. There's a really great book. I've got to look it up on my phone because I don't want to... mess it up but there's a really great book called how to help your spouse heal from your affair by linda mcdonald Mm. it's a really short book and i like to use this for couples who have experienced not chronic affairs but maybe one affair um, maybe even two affairs that I think it's really helpful for the person who's been betrayed to read it first, highlight and underline, make notes in the book, and then the person who did the betraying to read the same copy of the book to see what really stuck out to their partner and what they really need to be aware of. So I've had a lot of success using that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's chapter six in Mending the Shattered Heart that is good for the the mm-hmm. partner of the betrayed spouse to read. Is that right? Is I don't six? know
1: about chapter I don't know the chapters okay. but I think it's really really helpful to read
0: uh, The chapter 6 is the one with all the letters that are very specific to I what it's like I don't remember that yeah, okay. off fine. the top of my head but yeah,
1: yeah. I think it is helpful to re- for each person to read about what each person is going through to develop to develop some empathy
0: Yeah please don't do WebMD though and dive into every blog and everything Mm-mm. for sex addiction so if you're out there Because people
1: put their opinions yes. on
0: there This has happened like you're going to get a lot of really mixed reviews a lot of really bad advice it's like sleep training your child you're never going to learn what is right (laughs) on on the internet it's Mm -hmm. terrible Mm -hmm. um okay yeah you can check out our website when are your groups
1: um so the group that's open right now is mondays from 11 to 12 um, and we have about three ladies right now in our group so i really try to cap that group at about six people because an hour is, is You know there's only so much we can do an hour and then my other group is Thursdays um, and I'm shifting the time a little bit about on that starting the new year it's gonna be from four to five and that group may open up for to take some new members based on that time shift. I'm just not sure yet. Right now it's closed.
0: Yep. And then Olivia Mason over in Ruston, we're talking about opening a group uh, maybe in November.
1: And then the sex addiction groups, do you want to speak about that? Yeah,
0: we'll. Uh, and, and her group will be online. So we're thinking about doing an oh, okay. online group. So Because I had like three or four people in the last month met, message me and say, hey, I love, and they sent me a screenshot of your group. I'm like, <laughs> hey, I'd love to do this, but I'm out of town. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there's just not any resources Mm-mm. you know around here um are, are close um so yeah um and then the c groups i can't remember all the times ross has
1: ross meets from 11 to 12 mm-hmm. on tuesdays and then i think wednesdays from four to five
0: okay and then i have a group from 10 to 11, 11 15 on mm-hmm. thursdays yeah and that's open so
1: so if you're interested in joining our group please give our office a call
0: yep yeah you can find that online um I think that's it. Uh, I always ask people, you know, what are you kind of... The you know topic of asking why. What are some things you're asking why about uh, these days?
1: Yeah, I'm asking why... Really, there's such division in our, our world and our culture in general and how to not get caught up in going to either extreme but to finding grace somewhere in the middle. That's what I'm really kind of focusing on. I tend to shy away from people who um have extreme views on things but i do think it's important to educate myself on those things and be up to date with what our culture is facing but not getting wrapped up into that because it provokes a lot of anxiety and fear and all of those other things so
0: absolutely i think a lot of that ties into what we've been talking about and people trying to find their identity and you know, feeling like if we don't agree with something else that somehow it's taken something away mm-hmm. from us and, and people are just responding and, and mm-hmm. flailing. So, yeah, that's it's good. Me, too. I'm asking the same things. All right. Well, episode 10, that's a wrap. Um, please Thanks subscribe. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on here. Um, I love working with you. It's awesome. So I know this is easy same. for us because we talk about it all the time. Yeah, same. Um, but at the end of the day, like we want people to know that this is about relationships and that we want to take care of people and see people as real authentic, whole people, um, and take them in and love on them and help them recover and help them work through it. So, um, visit our website, clindaviscounseling.com. Um, go to our Facebook page, subscribe to this YouTube channel, asking why, and we'll see you next week. God bless you.